Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say, you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, we talk about The Last Starfighter also. So, I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us at Happy Hour Flicks, anywhere podcasts are found. And it stars, a, you know, kind of a comedy hijinks of uh, gambling hijinks of an uh, elderly woman. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Why don't I try one? And then, Eduardo, maybe I should make you try to give the log one. I love this. <laughs> I love like, this. I really want to hear a DP yeah. give a log line. This yeah, is going to be exciting. <laughs> this is the, the independent, independent, independent filmmaker's guide from Framework Productions. Framework, Framework Productions. On IFG, we talk about independent film from development through delivery. By featuring discussions with creators and collaborators about their experiences, we form a roadmap to help you have the most success with your projects. On the surface, how a film succeeds can feel like a roll of the dice. In our conversation, this director of photography and writer-director duo reveals how it was actually their skill, determination, attention to detail, and relationships that helped them create their heist comedy, Lucky Grandma. Once you start shooting TV professionally, and, and you asked your gaffer, bring some mambo combos. Like, oh, we can bring a scissor lip. <laughs> Why would you want a mambo combo? That is cinematographer Eduardo Mayen. Everybody was really there, I think, for the love of the project. I think it had some really talented people. Some were inexperienced, some were very experienced. It's a real mix, but you choosing your people very wisely. And that's Stacey Seeley, co writer and director. The story behind the movie, I mean... I'm your host, Stephen Pierce. So I always say it's sort of inspired by those actual Chinatown buses. So you're in New York, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you're familiar with the Chinatown bus. I'm very familiar with the Chinatown <laughs> bus. It's a, that's a chapter from from my history that I hope never to repeat. I feel like everybody who's lived in New York has taken the Chinatown bus. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a rite of passage. If you've not stood on 34th Street, right where it picks up, right by uh, MSG, at least a lot of them do. Well, a lot of them pick up there and a bunch of them will pick up on like Bowery or down or down there, depending on where you're going. So uh, I had some friends who were like very into poker. For a while, and um, so sometimes we would go to the casinos. There's these casinos on Indian reservations, like outside of New York, and you can take the Chinatown bus to the Indian reservations. Uh, and so that's what I would do because uh, I was in my 20s and I was broke. <laughs> so my mode of transport was the Chinatown bus, and I would be like the only person under 50 on this bus. And yeah. And you have to understand that these buses that go to the casino, they are like a party bus because they leave at five or 6 PM and they come back at four o'clock in the morning. So this is like a party bus full of senior citizens and me. Um, basically you are all like planning for a night out. It's like a cruise without the shuffleboard. Totally. Uh, and so I, I don't know, I kind of had the image or the idea for that scene on the bus, which kind of, you know, sets everything in motion. Um, that was sort of like a little bit of the impetus behind the idea. At the time, nobody wanted to make a movie about an old woman 
particularly one that was in Chinese and it was, you know, pretty crazy rich Asians. And even though people love this script, they, you know, we can get the financing together. Can you sum up kind of the, the high points of the story or of the movie? Well, it's like, a, a, to me, it felt like a Coen Brothers movie in Chinese. You know, it's a total heist. Um, it's a heist film with a lot of comedic moments. Coen Brothers movie in Chinese. I mean, that's a great pitch. <laughs> yeah. And with all these amazing characters. What was that like? I mean, how did you go about casting? Let's start there. You know, unfortunately, and fortunately, our lead was in every single scene of the movie. And she was... 85? 80, she's 85. 85. Years. She's 86 now, but she was 85 when we made the movie. So, you know, this we have a window of capturing that magic, and then we just, she's got to go rest. So we were looking for a grandma, and when we first started, I was not planning on casting an 85-year-old. I was like, no, I'm going to make my life easier. I'm going to find a nice, spry 70-year-old, and I'll just give her a little makeup or something. Um... So, you know, we started doing auditions, reaching out to people, making lists, you know, the things that you do when you pass. But, you know, nobody, nobody was really grandma. Nobody, we were having trouble finding her. And Sai, Sai Chin is like, you know, she's definitely known in the Asian American community, in the theater community. You know, she's Auntie Lindo from Joy Luck Club and has been around a long time. Although she's never really had a chance to do a lead role like this before. It's a great role for somebody. I mean, something about her as well that's super unique, I think, is that she's been in two James Bond movies 40 years apart. She was in uh, You Only Live Twice in 1967 and then in Casino Royale, right? Yep. Yep. She's had a very interesting career and a very interesting life. She was on my list, but I thought that she was too old because the character is 80 in the script and Cy was 85. And, you know, I was just like, uh, I don't even know if she's acting anymore. Like, maybe she's retired or something. Um, but a friend of mine uh, went to the 25th anniversary screening of Joy Luck Club, which was playing in L.A. And Cy was there doing the Q&A. And he called me immediately afterwards and said, I don't know, Sace, she seems pretty spry to me. I would talk to her. And so when I got that phone call, I was like, okay sent her the script, got on a plane 48 hours later, had like met her for dinner. We had like this epic four hour crazy dinner with like many bottles of wine. <laughs> um, I love this woman. Yeah. We're, she seduced me or I seduced her or something. I don't know. She spent like the first like half hour telling me all the reasons like I should not cast her. She's very, she's very funny, <laughs> but. Sounds perfect for the character though. Kind of reluctantly stubborn. She was like, I'm not going to run. I'm like, not going to swim. I'm not, gonna, <laughs> I, need, <laughs> I need, I need a rest. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> Great. You'll be grandma. Did you find her agent and just send it that way? Yeah, we got it. We got a tour through her manager or agent. One of those. Okay. So that, and that, and that's when things started to turn to make really making the movie. Well, the movie was happening regardless. Cause we got the financing from a grant uh, from Tribeca and AT&T. Uh, and we had to make a movie and deliver it within a year of getting the grant. Oh, interesting. So, was that like, I'm sorry, I didn't, I don't know much about that process at all. Well, that was sort of how we got financing for the film, which was really like a Cinderella story. You know, it's very unusual for independent films, but basically, uh, you know, I'd, we'd had the script, had tried to raise money for it, but it was basically like sitting in a drawer. You know, I was like working on other stuff. I was directing some TV and commercials and stuff, um, which is how I met Eduardo. 
And uh, yeah, and then basically Tribeca called. So I'd had a relationship with them because I'd had some shorts and in the festival and like some other feature projects that had been part of their, um, you know, labs or like grants or other things. So, you know, in an independent film, like all of those things matter, right? Like your relationships with Sundance, with Tribeca, with Film Independent, all of those stuff, you know, spans years usually. And so they called and they told me about this grant that they had and asked if I had any projects that kind of fit the parameters of what they were looking for, um, which was basically what they were looking for was a quote unquote untold story, which is basically like anything that you don't usually see. So it could be like a minority. It could be like a old woman, disability, mental, whatever, like anything that's just sort of like not your normal Hollywood thing. Um, and we had that for this project, uh, you know, cause we'd been trying to get it made. And so we, when we got the grant, the, the stipulations for the money were that we had to turn around a movie to premiere the next year's Tribeca, like in a year. Um, yeah, but that was like a whole process. There's That's like, a, I mean, that is a dream scenario. I've never heard of that story before. That's amazing. Once you go through the different rounds, like all the initial rounds, the final thing is like Shark Tank, basically. You like pitch to this like celebrity panel. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that's how you met Eduardo because you were working in commercials and television at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we met on a TV show called Gordon Moore Gibbons Life on Normal Street. That's where that's where we met. <laughs> yeah. Amazon. Yeah. Going back to $1 million, you've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a $1 million movie. No, there's a lot of locations. Uh, you know, it doesn't have a terrible ton of cast in it, but there's a lot of a lot of production design in that movie. Yeah, and a lot of locations and like, I don't know. Chase sequence, action sequence. Multiple action sequences with an 85-year-old. Yeah, it was just. With um, an 85-year-old woman. That's a great point. Being at the center of all of it. I mean, the whole thing was really just an exercise in blind optimism. (laughs) (laughs) But we made it through. So how did you, how do you approach an action sequence with an 85 year old woman on a million dollar budget? And I'm sure the schedule was just also bananas. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we had to rewrite some stuff. Uh, one of size things is she doesn't run, <laughs> and she would often tell me, "I have no idea what it means to be old." That's what she would tell me all the time. Um, so she would like to educate me about that and <laughs> tell me all the things that old people can't do. Uh, yeah, one of which was run because if you fall, it's very bad. So the chase scene, quote unquote, had to be kind of uh, reimagined as a fast walking pursuit scene basically um, but it was cooler it made it made it so much more special because yeah yeah and it made it more character based because then i kind of reimagined it more as like um what would Gram- like what would grandma do like in terms of and it became about her more outsmarting them than about physical like, like running getting away yeah exactly yeah so, Eduardo, tell me a little bit about the schedule overall. What was, how many days did you guys end up shooting? How was it, 25 days? 25, which sounds yeah. like a lot, but it's not. <laughs> um, it's more than most independent films have, but most independent films don't have an 85 year old lead. <laughs> yeah. Or big, big shootout scenes. Yeah. And chain scenes and shooting in Chinatown. Um, 
Shooting in Chinatown's a whole thing. I've done it a few times. Man, that is difficult. <laughs> like you want to, you want to ramp up a production. You just can't even park the truck. You can't, you can't park anything. You can't get people out of the way. Things were not consistent for sure, but we got the authenticity. And I, I really, it was hard. It was, it was a challenge to move in that small apartment, which was a find. It, it took a while to find that apartment. We've. Well, you had found it before, but it wasn't, it wasn't there yet. It was too big, but the, you know, we were, you know, when I came into this, I knew that we were going to have a limited time and a limited budget and equipment that we wouldn't be able to uh, have nature bend to our will, but we would have to let nature do its thing. So I was very specific about how, how the windows had to face a certain direction so the light would be consistent throughout the day. And, you know, we had all these requirements for the apartment apart from the technical ones, the, the aesthetic ones too. And we found this place, but it was just too big. And And then do you remember how new it was? Brand new. Everything was brand new, but you know, the windows were great and the half of the apartment, the layout was good. So Stacey had the idea to build this, this full wall and then it was perfect because then it became part for production and for size dressing room and the other was a practical set and then we also had a wild wall which made it that was Eduardo's idea (laughs) where we could actually shoot through a little board and having that and having this blank canvas and having a director who already saw the scene in her head and saw this different scenarios we could actually walk through the, the set out as it was being built. And I could ask the art department who was fantastic saying, you know, I'm going to need a light there. I'm going to need a light there and a light here. And so I, I was lighting a lot with practical lights. And you having the ability to kind of go through and, you know, pick exactly what you were saying a minute ago there, Eduardo, I'd be like, I want a practical here. I want a practical here. I want it allowed you to really sounds like maybe more control than you normally get in this kind of setting. Yes, because we were, we built it a la carte almost, you know, a lot of indie films where you work in practical locations, you kind of have to work with what's there, but we were able to put in our own fixtures and our own walls where we needed them to be. What's the wild wall? Describe what the wild wall is. Well, a wild wall is a, is a wall that can be easily swung in and out and open. So if, if, if you've seen the movie, I might give away a secret. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. The sink, her sink, there's an actual port. I mean, behind her sink and behind where the front door is, that's a whole wooden wall. And behind the sink, you can actually swing open the sink with that light and you would go into the other room. And so sometimes, mostly at night, we would put the camera in there and shoot right over the sink and we could shoot the entire width of the apartment from that wall. So you could get a wide angle where you would not have been able to get one before, or you're doing some kind of crazy lens. Sometimes if you look very carefully, the night exterior light shifts a little bit, but you know, in the heat of the moment, nobody really notices. Uh, <laughs> that was Chinatown for you. You, know, you could put the lights in this space, but maybe you had to put it two spaces down. In Chinatown also, I mean, that's you, that you got to be small. Like you got to, that's what you have to do if you're going to shoot in that location. You guys did a fantastic job just executing these great little 
pictures, you know, of like, and by picture, I mean, kind of the staging, the composition where, I mean, she's sitting at the table and it's warm and there's like cool kind of feel behind her and make that space feel larger than it actually is, but still feel, you know, intimate and textured. So that you, you little, most of that with practicals, right? Is that kind of your approach so that you can move quickly? Yeah. And also to have a natural feel, but I mean, it's Stacey had this Bible of, 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 color palette and she's very into color palette and very specific so we already knew what was gonna work harmoniously it wasn't just completely random you know like we knew that and and, and let's, we did a test where i was like you like this gel you like this gel you like this gel you like that gel. then we would choose it and then it's like that finding that harmony was based on this pdf that she built of seeing seeing the the color palette of the film evolve throughout the storyline Let's talk about your collaboration together for a little bit. Like how much, Stacey, did you have shot listed being like, this is what we're going to do. This is why I want to cover the scene. This is the way all the construction of the composition should be. And how much of that came from the collaboration with Eduardo? Well, it's always a collaboration. Plus, I mean, that's why, that's why I picked Eduardo. He can, you know, he's great. He can read my mind. <laughs> so that's good. Um, I mean, pretty much everything is like, shot listed and I, my storyboards are not really storyboards my storyboards are squares that i draw the stick figures in them but so they're they wouldn't actually be storyboards that i would show to anyone but you know they're shot listed and we also like for the stuff in the apartment we were able to go there together how were you finding these locations when we had a location manager so joanna Liu, who's also a co-producer on the film she was our location manager but also jenny our co-producer kind of came through with a lot so Jenny, so Jenny, just to like describe Jenny, she's like the godmother of like all production in Chinatown. So she works on like pretty much any production that shoots in Chinatown, whether it's like a giant Hollywood thing, like the Joker or like our film. If it shoots in Chinatown, <laughs> Jenny works on it. She's like a badass. She's a teamster. How much prep did you guys end up doing? We had a nice chunk. Yeah, we had a, Yeah, although we still kept losing locations. So it was like kind of sometimes ineffective prep, I would say. But it was a nice ex creative exercise. <laughs> How many weeks were you on for prep, Eduardo? It was like three weeks. Three weeks of prep, right? I don't know, something like that. Three or four weeks or something. I, I still have my record of the most paces in one of our locations. I think we walked about... 12, 15 miles that day. Wow. Up and down Chinatown. And I learned the different Cantonese and the Mandarin sign of Chinatown. Uh, and that's, you know, a lot of things were completely finally fleshed out after our walks through Chinatown. And some things she adjusted, she liked a little bit more, or um, we got other ideas, but it was, it was great to walk around and just see all of that and then sit down with the locations that we had and, and map things out based on what we had. And then a lot of the things, you know, are kind of, there was a lot of creativity and how to problem solve a lot of that. Like the sauna was a sauna that we built that was like in a random, what was that? It was like a dental office that was like, like attached, dental office that was attached to the bank. <laughs> what camera did you guys end up, what did you shoot on? What lenses? Were you using a variety of lenses? We used the Alexa Mini. Actually, no, the Amira. We wanted the Alexa Mini, but we could only get an Amira, uh, which actually turned out I, I turned out li liking more. The problem with the Amira is it's a little bigger, and you know every inch in that apartment counted. 
What was your base lighting package? Did you guys, how did you operate? Did you have basically a three ton that you were just rolling around or did you, what, like you'd go for mostly LED stuff? I was like, what were, what was your, what was your game? Well, it depends on the location, you know, sometimes we didn't have a, a, a grip truck. I mean, we did have a little cube truck where we kept lights, but it, everything changed depending on what we were shooting that week or the, the next couple of days. Oh, so you'd grip out, you like, you did your packages per week, per day. Sometimes, you know, they, I, I, I had, I brought special stuff for like the night interiors. I brought big special lights and then I sent them back. And then the, the basic stuff was really basic. It was like an led kit, a couple of uh, uh, like an led card kit, a couple of led panels, um, a couple of daylight units and, I mean, that's about it. And that allows you, I mean, that's very smart. That allows you to quickly move around scenes, cover stuff and not have to do total whole relights. You can dim a lamp up, dim a lamp down, pull something a little bit this way, this way. That was the idea. So what is, what is the release now look like for Lucky Grandma with, I mean, COVID has really thrown a wrench into everybody's, any, everybody's plan. So how did that, how is that playing a role into what your strategy is moving forward? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's all making it up as we go along, pretty much. Uh, so we came out May 22nd in virtual theaters, quote unquote. So that was sort of a, uh, a new plan. We were originally supposed to have a, an indie theatrical release in August. You know, maybe I think it was like a 30 city kind of release. It's still small, um, you know, and we just weren't sure. like if movie theaters were going to be open, I mean, I think we still don't know, right? If movie theaters are going to be back open, if anybody would be going, et cetera. So we kind of uh, put our foot on the gas. We actually hadn't even delivered our DCP and stuff to our distributor yet <laughs> and kind of, you know, got everything to them in a hurry. Um, Kino, uh, Kino Lorber, you know, the sort of like stalwart indie distributor, they kind of pioneered this, but basically it's a way to give Indian art house theaters revenue during COVID. So it's basically just streaming, but you, instead of going to iTunes or Amazon or something like that, you go to like a specific link for your local art house theater. And then they share the revenue with this, with the distributor and the filmmakers, just like they would in a theatrical release. And, you know, they're not getting any revenue right now. I mean, at all, like, except for these streamers. So like, if you want to, if I was put a pitch out there, like if you want to like support like the Angelica or the Alamo draft house or like any of your sort of local art house theaters, if you go to their website, there's a bunch of films that are streaming now that are being released this way. You're the first person I have talked to that has a film currently showing in virtual cinema, some that are about to release. So how's that experience been for you? And that, how is it? I mean, cause it was your initial plan Were you connected to a distributor before you were going to film festivals. Uh, no, no. So we, we had a sales agent when we premiered um, and then finding the distributor sort of like the normal song and dance. And we really wanted, I mean, the irony is, is that we took a really long time to make a deal because we really wanted a theatrical release, like a lot. Um, we felt like, so we kind of gave that up. But, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, the, all the newspapers and press have been reviewing these virtual movies as if they were theatrical releases. So we were still able to get the same reviews and press attention that we would have gotten, I think, if we had opened normally. Gotcha. I mean, the virtual cinemas, 
fewer people are going, like you're not going to get the box office that you would get from normal theatrical. You know, it's just not, I think nobody knows what it is basically because it's pretty new, but we've actually been able to show in more cities than 30 because, you know, there's not the physical limitations on book theater booking because, uh, you know, like a lot of small town art house theaters have like maybe two screens or something. Right. And like, if you don't perform, they'll change out pretty quickly. Um, but now there's like less pressure on opening weekend and things like that, because since it's like streaming, they can hold more titles than they normally would. What was your post-production process like? Everything was very fast on this film. Uh, I would say a little faster than normal. A year sounds like a long time, but it's not actually because we didn't really start moving. I did some script revisions. We got the grant in April. Then I was, I was booked, me and my producers and my co-writer, Angela, we were booked on other things. Like we had to like get out of other obligations, like to suspend our life for like the next year to work on the movie. So that took a, a little bit of time. And so during that period, we did some polishes on the script and we didn't really start casting. Like we hired a casting director to start casting until June. And then casting was a long process and then starting like everything up. Also, my one of my producers was still finishing up another movie. Like she produced the Watergate like documentary series and was like still on that until July. Then we shot in October, mid-October through November. Is that right, Eduardo? And then we did a and then we did a second pickup in January that Eduardo couldn't shoot. And so I edited some, we started editing some like after that first production period till Christmas. But then I didn't see because we were missing the entire casino sequence in like first act of the movie, really. And so we didn't shoot that until January. So I didn't see in a full assembly of the movie until uh, end of January, first week of February. And then I had to picture lock. In March. Yeah, I guess you're kind of in a unique situation because you had that back end of Tribeca where you had to get in and you have to finish it. And finishing usually takes surprisingly longer than everybody always thinks. You know, exactly. Yeah. Mixing in color is even after you picture lock, there's a still a lot of work to be done to get that delivered. Oh, yeah. If I could have like a few few extra months, I, I definitely would have taken it if I could have had a little bit more time. But also at the same time, I mean, you got to make a movie, you know what I mean? Off the grant. I mean, that's a hell of a great, great deal. Yeah. Yeah. And we shot a little bit later than we wanted to because we had some, because casting took a lot longer than we thought it would. And also because Corey, so who plays Big Pong, he's from Taiwan. We had visa issues with him. So we pushed the shoot because he couldn't get into the country to work. As a hurdle, I'd never thought of being an issue is like, you know, the, the getting people to work temporarily in the U.S. Oh yeah. No, it's like a whole thing and it has not been made easier under the current administration. What kind of crew were you working with? And I mean, mostly like departmentally, how many people were there on a given day? I mean, it depends. You know, we usually I had two camera assistants and two grips and two electrics. Sometimes we would need a couple more people, depending on the location we were lighting when we were shooting. Um, But that was the core crew for me. And then, you know, there were an onset dresser who was also a prop master. <laughs> uh, you know, we, everybody did a little bit more than normal. Than yeah. But it was good. We, were, we all felt like filmmakers, you know, we all seemed like we were invested in it. And, and, and so that made it more special. 
if you were giving advice to people who were making their first indie film or maybe their second or something, what what would you take away from making this process that you'd give you'd say to them? Now, don't underestimate the importance of a good UPM and line producer. <laughs> that would be one. You know, there are things that I hadn't really spent that much time thinking about before, you know, as I have a lot of opinions and thoughts about the DP and the production designer and the composer and things like that. But uh, you have a good line producer and UPM that will make your life way better. Um, that would be number one. Uh, and then... I would say, you know, the one thing that I'm really, really happy with for the movie is I think I really love the team that we assembled generally, you know, everybody was really there. I think for the love of the project, I think it had some really talented people. Some were inexperienced, some were very experienced It's a real mix, but I think choosing your people very wisely as much as possible and having good mojo on set, I think is very important. I mean, pre-production is always key. And I think the other lesson is less is more. I, I feel like sometimes I was trying to impose a little too much. And then when I was watching the dailies or watching the final cuts, I was like, oh, I was going really fast here. And it was, I, I just put one little light, but it was one of my favorite shots in the movie. Wait, which one? <laughs> I won't tell you. Uh, when, when she's hiding. You know, the, the, when we had to turn around, we did the other shot and she's very dark, but she has a, just enough light. And I just liked how mysterious that looked. And I think if I would have had a little bit of more time, maybe I would have put more light, but I actually like how it looks now. And, and I feel like working on these indie movies, I adapt my style too. It's like, oh, I can actually get away with this. And that actually has gotten, it's more emotive. So in August, Lucky Grandma will be available on transactional VOD and like mm -hmm. other platforms, probably most yeah. likely. So if people wanted to learn more about you all and your upcoming projects, uh, where should they go and what are you guys working on? I'm definitely working on quite a few things. Um, some things that haven't been formally announced yet. So we will, we will see, but um, yeah, hopefully I'll be doing another movie soon, very soon, as soon as production goes back. <laughs> um, but, you know, for the, for the meantime, I'm going to be writing. I'm spending quarantine writing. And do you have a, an Instagram or something that you, where people should follow you? Oh, yeah. I have an Instagram. Stacey Seeley. See? It's very easy. Very easy. <laughs> very how, easy. How about you, Eduardo? Um, I have an Instagram. It's Eduardo E-M-A-Y-E-N. -E -E but the last show that I did is called Cherish the Day. You can watch it now on, on, on demand if you're stuck in quarantine. It's a, it's a love story. It's an anthology love story of nine episodes. So it doesn't take that long. Uh, but yeah, that was the last thing I did. Okay, great. So they got their entire budget from a grant. Yeah. Uh, first that's time I've first ever time. heard. That's a first. And that is incredible. I mean, and like, you know, Tribeca called her. The relationships, as she said, in independent filmmaking, especially, it's all about the relationships and what a takeaway that was. And again, like, I mean, she tried to, I do think that, I mean, they tried to raise the money. They were ready to go. They had their materials together. Opportunity came. There you are. You're ready. So that, again, just is, you know, even if you don't sell it right away and it doesn't look like it's moving, got to keep, keep churning, keep moving forward. Don't get bogged down, you know, on just the way, you know, just because you feel like something isn't moving. It sounds like there are a lot of locations to the film, but in the discussion, it sounded like so much of it, 
at least from what they were saying, it sounds like a lot of it was based in that apartment or that apartment was so crucial to me. Uh, You've seen the film. I hadn't got to see it yet. But to me, it feels like that one apartment location was crucial and, and a lot happened there. Yeah, it really did. I mean, and also I think they really they did a lot. I mean, it's a million dollar budget is not not a lot of money. Like, I know it is a lot of money and even like in an indie world compared to some indie films. But that movie doesn't look like a million dollar movie. And also it's got I mean, to build a wall, an apartment like that and own that location. I mean, that's that's a lot. You're taking on a lot of, you know, costs and needed resources to do that. You know, something I keep taking away that I've heard now several times um, is people in Indies don't have the locations. They have, you know, a couple, maybe key locations, and then they keep changing. And they they just kind of go in and make it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and she also said, I mean, a couple of great takeaways. She also said, don't underestimate, you know, a good UPM and line producer, which we have learned that lesson for sure. And something that a lot of people just doesn't, it's not even on their radar. Yeah. Pretty good production schedule, though. 25 days. That's I. That's a healthy schedule. Doing better. We've talked to ones that, that are 15 days, and that just sounds insane. Yeah. Filmmaking is a collaborative experience, and so is this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at framework underscore productions for upcoming episode announcements and leave your questions in the comments for our future guests. The first 10 to comment are immediately entered to win a monthly prize. Please take a second to subscribe so you know about future episodes and leave a review. It really does help us. For more information about today's guest, visit independentfilmmakersguide.com to see visuals, diagrams, and to see links to the episode in video and article form. IFG is a community, and we want to help you in your filmmaking process. Hi, I'm Chris Siaco, an independent filmmaker from Astoria, Queens, and I'm reading the credits. IFG is created by Framework Productions and directed by James Alderice. It's produced by Matt Mundy, edited by Audrey Ray McHale, and hosted by Stephen Pierce. The music is by Glassboy. Find his music on freemusicarchive.org. See and listen to all episodes, plus bonus content at independentfilmmakersguide.com. Thanks for listening. Hey friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First... We wanted to thank you, our listening community, and our wonderful guests, learning so much together along the way and continuing to learn, sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends, and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about. Which also brings me to my second point. In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film heard. H-E-R-D, Heard, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Heard. You can pre-order it on Apple TV and of course do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's H-E-R-D dot F-I-L-M, herd.film as well. Thank you again. And be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.